Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night. I'm um, still wrapped up like everybody else is in the current events. That's only normal. Uh, On the other hand, people are bugging me to do, you know, history things. They don't care about what's going on or something, whatever it is. And uh, I just got chastised by Swarm Chatter, whatever. Uh, and I got a uh, email from the Kasowskis in, in uh, Michigan asking me to do something. Today is the art site of uh, the Chazanish. And it turns out that Rabbi Ira Kasowski's, Kasowski's uh, grandmother was a related second cousin of Chazanish and so forth and so on. You know, they have family connections. Kosovsky is a well-known literature name. And uh, and he and his wife, Rabbi Ira and Rachel Kosovsky, want to do it uh, for his chusper, the protection of the Israeli soldiers, so all the safe return of all hostages. Obviously, you can't go against that. <clears throat> Amen. And I said, I'm not going to do the chazani. I said, that's a big subject. And truth of the matter is, that's like a three or four part business, if anything. Um, right? But uh on the other hand I said, you know, if you're interested, I'll do a, a, a piece, a slice of the Chazanish. <clears throat> Maybe something that's no gay a little bit to what's going on now. And uh, and they're fine with that. <clears throat> and so let me just share with you some thoughts, a few thoughts on the Chazanish and the state of Israel and Zionism and the situation of Israel now. But he's a very influential figure in that sort of thing. So that's what I'm going to say. Devote a, sh- a few short <coughs> thoughts to that now. And uh, and, and uh, thanking the Kosowskis for, for sponsoring it. They have the best of motives. Um, now, okay, they're in the front lines of Jewish education, by the way, in the Midwest. I, my life, me, myself, I've never been to Michigan. Forget Detroit. I've never even been to Michigan. Um, anyhow, there is, I'm sure, those who are into the Chazanish know that there's the old Parador, which was a like hundred volumes, whatever, you know, and that's what I grew up with from Eretz Yisrael, very hagiographic, of course, and the art scroll and the others. And then this professor, Benny Brown, was a big mumcha, and he put like a thousand page biography. I'm holding it in front of me right now. I'm not going to go through all that, Right. Because in order to understand his thousand-page biography, you got to know a lot of the background, uh, and that's already like a lecture series. So, as I said before, let me cut right to the chase and bring about a few points about the Chazanish that uh, are of interest to me tonight and to the situation in general. First of all, and I can skip a lot of preliminaries because I think everybody knows that the Chazanish is. So you know, I don't have to go through all the details. Except to tell you that he lived, was born in 1878 and died in 53, I think it was. So, um, you know, so he lived to be in 75, something along those lines. And uh, uh, and he always was bad health. Uh, used to be a big, a very 
righteous uh, Rob in Baltimore long ago, Rabbi Rabinowitz, and uh, who came was born in Yerushalayim and came here in the 1920s. He's a rabbi in Baltimore. It was a big tzaddik and all that. They had children, and I knew his his rebbetzin after he died, died in the 50s. Um, she told me all kinds of things. And he was uh, raising money in like the, thir- the 40s, you know, privately from people to send medicines to the chazanit. He had, somehow or other, he knew him. I don't know how. Because he left Palestine in 1920 or so, and the chazanit showed up in Israel in 1933. But he knew. And, you know, he had to get him a little refrigerator for the pharmaceuticals and things like that, which were rare. It's uh, just interesting, you know. Uh, okay. The reason I mentioned he's born in 1878, that tells you everything. <clears throat> if he was obviously from, and he's from Belarus, so he's Litvish. Lithuania is not only the country of Lithuania, but White Russia also. And White Russia is half Chabad, for the most part, and half Litvish. Um, Misnagdom. And he's from that part. Uh, the Chazanish, Karelitz. And, um, how should I put this? That means he grows up 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, the peak years of the weakness of orthodoxy in Russia and Eastern Europe. Those were the years when he's coming up, when Haredi Judaism, I'll use that term, was in in Russian Empire, which included Poland, Lithuania, everything else, uh, pretty much on the ropes, and it got worse with the First World War, and it got worse after that in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, that's that's the story. So the Chazanich didn't live in Ivory Tower. He lived in a specific time and specific place. And even though he himself, from day one, was a gone and a tzaddik, he really was, of course, and a genius and so forth and so on. But all around him, he lived in Vilna. He lived for a while in Minsk, uh, you know, during the war. I mean, let's put it this way. Everybody had eyes to see. Believe me, Vilna and Minsk and these towns, Lithuania during those years, were not B'nai Brock. He created a B'nai Brock, possibly, you might say. But it didn't exist over there. You know what I'm saying? Not in his time. In his time, the Chil Shabbos was increasing all the time. The Chil HaMitzvah was incre- increasing all the time. I'll, I'll say the materialism and atheism, I mean materialism in the sense of philosophy. Uh, the disbelief in the Torah was increasing all over the place. This was the world that he was uh, operating in, which is not the world today. That's my point. Uh, in his time, when he was growing up as a young man, I'm sure most of his relatives and people, you know, all the rest, are going off to Derek. Ain't by Shame Shame, so to speak. There was no family of big rabbonim that didn't have children, grandchildren, cousins, this, that, and the other, siblings, who didn't go off to Derek, either became bourgeois, or cultural Zionists, or socialist, or Marxist of some sort or another, which means a principled atheism. I mean, it's quite a time in which he lived. Uh, and yet, as we all know, he morphed into something quite unusual. As I always say, as far as I know, there are three gedolim the Litvaks produced. Closest thing you could have to Hasidic Rebbe, I would say. And uh, uh, maybe four. And, uh, but, but not really. Uh, three who had like a unique authority even though they had no position, they didn't even have smicha. <laughs> one is the Vilna Gon, one is the Chabot Chaim, and one is the Chazanish. 
as far as I can see. I was thinking maybe Sol Solante, but not really. Not really. He didn't have that kind of authority, right? But the Vilna Gaon did in his time. And the Chavetz Chaim came to have in the second half of his life. Then the Chazanish also came to have in the second half of his life. They weren't rabbis. They didn't have congregations. They weren't really Rosh Yeshivas, right? Of the Yeshiva movement, which was picking up and developing in their time. Tkufa Yeshiva T. The famous Lithuanian Yeshivas and Sabotka and Tells and, you know, uh, uh, whatever it's called, Kamnitz and, and Mir and so forth. I know the Chavetz Chaim had a Yeshiva in Raden, but as you know, he didn't really run the Yeshiva. You know, he had Rosh Yeshivas to be in the Magad Shears. Um, so, and, and, and so you have, so what were they? If they weren't rabbis, they weren't Rosh Hashivas, they weren't principals of schools, you know what I'm saying? And they didn't have official positions, and they weren't members of the Knesset, so what the heck are they? The answer is, he's a Godel. <laughs> right? What was the grow in his time? He's a Godel. The Rambab famously says, there are different titles, but the highest title is no title. There's Rav, Rebbe, Rabbon, things like that. But what's the Melchash of a title? Hillel. Shammai, Sumchus, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Without any titles. So, nobody said, I mean, notice, let's put it this way, Lafuke, or Chaimer Zagrzynski, who was somewhat like that, but not exactly, because, uh, you know, he was, in in certain way, I mean, he was on the basin of, of Vilna. Chazanish was not on the basin, not that I know of, or the Chavetz Chaim, or uh, or the Vilna Gaon. Uh, it's just interesting. They lived somewhat, you know, isolated lives, but their influence developed through spread of reputation. They had, had you know, that over the course of time had tremendous authority, which is why we are interested in the biography of somebody like the Chazanich today, because of his historical impact. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, again, neither the Groa nor the Chavetz Chaim nor Chazanish was the yeshivish in their style of learning. I think the Chazanish tried for a while in the yeshiva, it didn't work for him. You know, he didn't like that style. Brisk, or, you know, Shemeshkop, all that sort of thing. So the styles of learning in the Lumdus, which swept so many others, <clears throat> not him, not, not some people, okay? So, uh, so what is it? Well, guess what? You can be a, a giant godol without going the yeshivish style, the old-fashioned way. And that's who these people were, which is just interesting <clears throat> because they ended up, at least in the case of the Chavetz Chaim, and the, perhaps the Chavetz Chaim is different. Chavetz Chaim wrote deliberately for popular audiences. Uh, that was his his style. The Chazanish did not do that. Um uh, so it's just interesting how they come to have all this influence if they weren't chasing it or, or having a careerist kind of um, life. But instead, I think most people know, <clears throat> Chazanich from day one was very retiring. He got married, he didn't have any children. So he could sit and learn. And that was fine with him. And I mean, learned Be'ian for a long, long time. And obviously he was a genius. And he's also Nech Bela <clears throat> He wasn't looking... As he said, to occupy a position, 
he knew the right people, he was related to the right people, had he wished to become political and chase after Estellers and things like that, uh, obviously that's not what he wished to do, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. So, if in the cor- over the course of time, it came to transcend, uh, you know, um, came to transcend the others, I mean, that, that, you know, that's an example of a triumph of a certain type of charisma, which is perhaps unique in the rabbinic world, I'm not sure, in which the charisma is spread more than anything else through word of mouth. Through word of mouth. In the case of Chazanish, <clears throat> he's born in 1878, so when he moved to Israel, he was, uh, what, 60 or so? 1878. He's in his 50s, right? In other, in other words, he was 1920, he was 50, so he's 55, okay? Which is not a young age. And he lived the next 20 years in Israel. So from the age of 55 to 75. Before that, he was in Europe. As I said before, if you grew up in Eastern Europe, in what they call the fantasy echo of the years before the First World War, you saw Rabbim Chalon and Mepila, right and left, things were falling. Before the First World War, the um, conservatism in the rabbinate was such that, uh, you know, they definitely did not want day schools like in the, which like you have in America. They saw this as a terrible uh, surrender to modernity. Modernity was identified, I would say, in those years, <clears throat> most um, infuriatingly with what we would call cultural Zionism. Because cultural Zionism was the successor of the Russian Haskalah, and I mean the non-from half, Although there were those in the cultural Zionists who were from, there were, but the predominant trend is not. And what you're trying to do is create an alternative Jewish culture, and they still are today in Israel. So that's why, like an American Orthodox rabbi, will dislike a reform more than a dislike of just a non-from. The non-from guy is not trying to create an alternative Judaism. He just chooses in his or her life not to practice the mitzvahs. The person who says it's a mitzvah to be Mechal Shabbos, or it's a mitzvah to have a gay rabbi, or it's a mitzvah, you know, to uh, eat a chazer or something like that, then there's no dialogue possible because you're trying to create a redefinition of terms. That's how they saw the skull up, the way it morphed for the most part in Russia, Eastern Europe, and was turned in its most dynamic form into the uh, cultural Zionism. So what I mean is, and this is when he's growing up, when the Chazanish was 20, the Zionist movement started when he was 19, 1897. One of the things the Zionist movement did was try to get a state in Israel, which didn't work right away. From 1897 was 20 years before they got the British to issue the Balfour Declaration and promise a Jewish state of some sort. But before that, the Zionist movement and I don't want to get into all the details, <clears throat> was into what they call Kibush HaKehilot, which was they wanted to conquer all the Jewish communities across Eastern Europe, Central Europe, through Chinuch. You understand? They wanted to get hold of the youth, 
by changing school systems and by setting up school systems. And in the years before the First World War, the firm were kind of like uh, deer in the headlights, particularly for girls, but also for boys. So I know you read about the guys who went to Mir and 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 uh, Tells and uh, you know Slobodka and all that, but they were the few, as you know. Uh, for the most part, the other kids didn't do that, and so to live in Vilna and see this increasing all the time must have been really uh, depressing. If you're from, you're saying Mazos Asol Kimlano, and this is the part I want to emphasize: the Chazanisha's you know growing years. He himself was in the front party, obviously. And uh, we came close with Chaim uh, Meiser and other people like that. So they saw themselves as under an ideological struggle. <clears throat> and in the bizarrest times up to 1914, their wings were clipped because the authorities really uh, were very dictatorial and were by no means interested in helping the Haredim. Even though that was stupid, from the Tsarist own interest they should have, but that's not the way it went. And so, every year, the Frumkite was the chipped away at more and more. And when the First World War came around, it really brought Nandra Lamusi into the world. And the Frum stuff deteriorated even more. But then came the post-war period, when things got very interesting, <clears throat> because, and I'm skipping around a lot, uh, there was a certain revival among the Frum, associated with sort of waking up and smelling the coffee and saying we better make day schools, even for girls, God help us, like Beit Yaakov or Yavna or something. And you started to see the possibilities of resisting the modernity and the cultural Zionism, and the other sorts of things. This is talking about the 20s and the 30s. So what I mean is, the yeshiva started to get their act together in terms of institutionalization. You started to get day schools, as you and I call the term, all across Eastern Europe, competing with the Zionist ones of various types. And you saw coming to the, congealing, the, the gelling of the idea among people like Ochaimah and others, which is, that the yeshiva, you know, represents not just a place of learning uh, Gemara, which of course is important, but an institution which is capable of resisting modernity and even countering it. So, um, you know, this is a glimmer of hope. As we all know, Chaim, uh, the Chazanish was closely associated in the 20s, early 30s with Rechaim Meiser, uh, in Vilna, in the Republic of Poland. In Poland, the um, feelings between the Zionists and the non-Zionists, between the good and the Mizrahi and all that sort of thing, were very bitter. Uh, may I remind you that Rechaim Meiser had that election in the late 20s, where he was not elected to office, another guy beat him out, which was a, a tremendous uh, bizarian and tremendous Chil Hashem. And part of his closest team was the Chazanish, who nobody knew about at the time, deliberately, but knows he was very close to them. And they were super outraged that the Mizrahi put forth their candidate and he beat Chaim Meiser in the elections, which were democratic elections, everybody voted. 
And so by the time the Chazanish moves to Eretz Yisrael in 1933, he's very bitter about Zionism in general, about Mizrahi, religious Zionism in particular. Uh, he's thinking, I'm just telling you the way I understand it. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is how I understand it. And, uh, and on the other hand, he sees, you know, the glimmer of hope in the what I'll call the yeshiva movement, provided it's guided properly. And as we all know, when the Chazanish moves to Israel in 1933, from early on, he starts to get a big reputation. The 1930s, when he chose to move, a very interesting moment. <clears throat> because in the history of Israel, and a lot of people don't know the history of Israel, I just... I'm half toying with the idea of maybe doing a series, just a quick series for the young people with history of the modern state of Israel the last 150 years or so, because I see they know nothing. Uh, just a question of time. But when the Chazanish moves there in the 30s, those are the years in which the state of Israel, as it came to be eventually, actually came to be in terms of population. Over the course of the 20s, we uh, wasted our time and very few Jews made Aliyah. Those are the wasted years. It's sad. So I guess there were probably 150,000 Jews in the whole Palestine, which is garnished but garnished. But starting in the 30s, for a whole bunch of reasons I can't go into right now, take too long, the numbers like really tripled or whatever. I remember in 1931 it was 30-some thousand, and then 1932 was 40-some thousand. In 1933 it was... Uh, 50 some thousand in 1934 and 35. I remember 34, 35 was 65,000. So that means the population ballooned. See, even though, and that's the basis of the modern state of Israel, when you start to have a mass of people, even though it's a tiny mass. I mean, by 1939, I think they had 450,000 Jews in all Eretz Yisrael, which is nothing, especially compared to the 6 million. But 450,000 is a, is, is a big shtickle. And uh, I know in America we're not used to think of it that way, but it is. And it meant there was real Jewish presence in Eretz Israel. It was on that basis they eventually built the state of Israel. Because by 1948, there were 650,000 Jews when the state was proclaimed. So that's enough to make a start, you understand? Now, who are these people pouring in during, this, during the 1930s? Oh, in the middle of the 30s, the British closed it down. Because the Arabs made a big uprising under the Grand Mufti and the British closed it down, let's put it that way. But the deed was already done and thousands and thousands of Jews had moved to Israel. But being that it's controlled by the Zionist movement, so most of them were not from. The from were always bitter. He says, you're, you're, you're discriminating against us. But that's hypocritical, of course, because if the from were in charge, they wouldn't they were discriminating in favor of the from. You know, uh, and second of all, design is said we need people to work on kibbutz and things like that. You guys aren't going to do anything. So, you know, there was a complete difference of opinion on how things should proceed. Uh, if the Chazanish had not moved to Eretz Yisrael in 1933, he would have been killed because all of his relatives that stayed behind in Belarus and eastern Poland were all killed in 1939, 40, and especially in 1941. I mean, that that's what happened. You know what I'm saying? That's what happened. And so... Um, the result was that uh, he had a ballooning of the population. Tel Aviv, like, exploded. Jerusalem got a lot bigger. 
a lot of other places did. They started the Velt of Kibbutzim and things of that nature. Moshavot, whatever, in the teeth of the Intifada, in the teeth of the Arab uprising. And uh, among the people moving there were some people with what I would call Haredi ten- tendencies, especially the Yekis. And uh, they were looking for uh, their own guttle, let's put it that way. Doesn't seem to me that they clicked so much with the regular, you know, Rabbanim that were in the old city of Yerushalayim and things like that. And I think, as we all know, they hooked up with the Chazanish, and that started a trend where more and more people did. And they looked him to, to Paskin. Uh, and since he not only talked to talk, but walked the walk, he lived a very simple lifestyle, as you know. Uh, He's an interesting person. I mean, he didn't go around and make fiery speeches and yeshivas and, and that sort of That wasn't his nature. Uh, his charisma started in the old-fashioned way, which is among a few people, and they tell others, and others meet him, and it spreads. And among his circles, increasing circles in the 30s and 40s, people say, oh, the Chazanish. You know? And if he poskins this way, you can be it. And if he tells you to do this and this, you can be someone. I mean, to get that kind of authority, even though it's in restricted circles, uh, is very impressive. And he became, I would say, the quote unquote, the Hasidic Rebbe of the non Hasidim in Eretz Yisrael. Okay? When you match that with the fact that the Jews in Europe got wiped out, so all you had left was Israel and America, by and large. And America was Shvachamais is just getting its act together. So to be, emerge as the preeminent figure in the non Hasidic world in the 40s, let's say, for example, puts him in a very uh, impressive position. Now, again, the Chazanish was not a member of the Agudab. He didn't get involved in politics in the classic sense of getting involved in politics. It wasn't his nature. That's never been the nature of the old Rabbonim or Gedolim, in the old school. There were religious rabbis who were political activists. There were those types. Uh, that was not him. He was the one they went to, to to get, you know, instructions from or to consult with. So that's like an old guru type, you know, old, old Goro. And remember, all these years he was publishing one volume after another. So part of his charisma is based on his published scholarship. On the other hand, as I always say, the Hamonam cannot judge the published scholarship, <laughs> right? All these Yakis and other people, and, uh, you know, on the Frum Moshavot, and what is Kamamiyas, I mean, they can't read the Chazanish, you know, not read, I mean, they don't really understand what he's talking about. You have to be a big Lamdan to, to do that. His old style is that, is Lamdanus. It's not Yeshivish. So, uh, you know, they're going by what others say. You understand what I'm saying? Published scholarship, if I tell you this guy's the biggest chemist in the world, that's because his colleagues will tell me that he's the biggest chemist. And the colleagues are chemists themselves, and they PhDs, and they can read his stuff. I can't read his stuff. I'm not a chemist, you know? I'm not a biologist. So I have to take someone else. So if you're talking about a Godel Ador type, who's, uh, you know, writing Torah literature, I mean, who's, who's the one judging whether it's good or bad? You understand? To be perfectly honest, among those who could judge... It was very controversial because all these Shi'ure Chazanish were challenged, as I think most people know, by Abraham Chaim Noah, and it got a very bitter set of fights. 
in the 40s, early 50s. And, uh, I mean, it really got kind of down and dirty. Um, but it didn't matter to the to the public. In other words, they're not in a position, most of them, to judge, you know, which set of shiurim for the mikvah or for the matzah or things like this is the correct one based on the makoras. You know, I mean, so you're going to tell me the grachno, you're going to do the chazanish. The answer is, most people go by the chazanish. And the chazanish is very important also, like, you know, that kind of attitude. And so you end up with a person who, without chasing any uh, fame, got very famous, without chasing any authority, became very, very extremely authoritative. And actually, um, you know, the number one authority in the non-Hasidic world, in Eretz Yisrael, for sure, for sure. So that gave you a certain, uh, that's what we call charisma in the uh, Torah world. That's how charisma arises. Uh, he's a classic case of that type. And since he spent all of his life not chasing it, that increased the charisma. The charisma. You see? Chazanish spent all of his life basically in B'nai Brak. I mean, he left there a very few times. B'nai Brak, especially in his time, was not so big, and it wasn't as firm as it is today. So, you know, that's a charisma of a, of a very unique type. And he wasn't politically active in the classic sense. But on the other hand, he lives through stormy times. I myself do not know anything that Chazanish did as far as the Holocaust and the Six Million concern. I'm not aware of it. I have a book at home. I never really read it. Picked up years ago what the Agun and Eretz Yisrael was doing during the Holocaust and all that. I didn't go and look it inside, just a tiny bit. But I don't believe the Chazanish is involved in any of it. I think, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I am, which is remarkable. Here, six million Jews are getting killed in Europe. And, you know, he's in a, he's in a Brock. Uh, not involved in this. That, that wasn't his way. You understand? That wasn't his way. Um... Uh, he was building up in Abrak in the sense of encouraging the Panavish to set up Yeshiva there and these Hasidic rabbis to move there and try to pass all these uh, ordinances to protect, you know, from Kite and B'nai Brak. And uh, those are the things that we're all familiar with. But um, in general, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, stepping forward and saying, let's organize the Hatzal efforts over here and, you know, make a, a huge impression that way. It's a very unique kind of charisma, okay? On the other hand, it was 100% clear that he, like Rechaim Meiser, represent the rejectionist attitude towards Zionism, towards modernity in general, particularly towards Zionism, which they clearly identified with the cultural Zionism, Achana'am, atheism, the attempt to set up an alternative Judaism, and all the rest of it. Uh, they didn't like the... Um, what do you call it? The Herzl Zionism, either the political Zionism. And the way they saw it was that this is causing the, you know, the anti-Semitism itself. Uh, remember, the Chazanish is the one who took Rebbe Chana Wasserman's uh, ideology, what's it called? Which is a principal attack on Zionism as a political ideology. And he translated from the Yiddish into, into Hebrew and published in Eretz role. So, you know, he identified with that. So, Rukhana uh, Wasserman, those people, that's the extreme ideological opponents of uh, Zionism. And yet, in his time, Zionism came together, especially in the 40s, as we know, 
and resulted in 1948 in the establishment of the State of Israel. The Chazanish was still around. They didn't consult him. He wasn't in favor of it. But I'm asking myself, so what exactly was he in favor of? I would imagine, I don't know. I imagine he probably figured the British mandate should go on. On the other hand, and, and you know, because that was the status quo. Do you understand what I'm saying? Here you are in the 1940s. And, you know, which way is it going? Is it going to turn into a Palestinian state? Is it going to turn into a Jewish state? Will it turn into a British mandate internationalized state? I mean, those are more or less the three different type of approaches. I can't believe the Chazanich wanted the Arabs to take over. On the other hand, he certainly didn't want the Jews to set up a secular state, which he would say was based on atheism. So it's just an interesting position. At the same time, he wasn't in the Torah cartel, let's say, who probably was favoring the Arab victory. So, like these guys now, you saw it online, the Torah cartel is marching with um, pro-Hamas. So, you know, nothing is beyond belief. The Chazanish certainly was not like that. But he was very offended, opposed, to the big Gurianist state that did arise. Now, Ben-Gurion himself was smart enough to realize after a couple years, uh, you got to give him credit for this, that the attitude of people like the Chazanish, led, led by the Chazanish, is long-term really deadly for the state of Israel, because you have a larger, larger group of people that are not gurus you. They don't recognize the state. They live here, but they don't recognize the state. In, in, in all kind of extreme forms. You and I know this to be true because here we are 70 years later and before this war started with the terrible attack on us, everybody was at each other's throat a month ago. A month ago, right? Uh, less. And among the people at each other's throat was the from and the not from, the Haredim and the non Haredim. And the Chilonim were going crazy trying to figure out what are you going to do about the Haredim who are not Darius to Medina. So they lived there and they pay taxes. They don't go to the army. But, the, but worse than not going to the army is the fact that you don't, you don't recognize any legitimacy whatsoever to the state of Israel. Uh, and this, you know, could be dangerous because nobody knows how the political situation turns out. That is why Ben-Gurion went to visit him in 53, I think, 52 or 53, early on in the years of the state, shortly before the Chazanich died. And, you know, he came and visited him. He saw how uh, poorly he lives, which, of course, excited his admiration. Ben-Gurion was not Bibi. He also was a person who believed in, uh, you know, a uh, modest lifestyle, let's call it that way. You know, these people weren't into luxuries the way Bibi and these other guys are into now. It's a whole corrupt uh, politicians. The from and the non-from, by the way, of... The Haredim and the Nacharedim. Everybody's into all the luxuries. Um, but, you know, not once upon a time. Uh, Ben-Gurion didn't live poor, but he didn't live fancy. And Menachem Begin, I think I've told you, if you go to Begin Museum, which I was at once or twice, or three times maybe, uh, and I watched the Israelis walking by, the thing that impressed them most was you saw a live-scale, uh, a live-size model of where Begin lived, which was a small apartment, you know, with a bedroom or two, and the kids slept in the bedroom, and the mother and father slept on the on on the sofa that, that you know, 
that you pulled out. You know what I mean? What the, the convertible. So, uh, and he was a prime, and he was a head of a party. All the rest, notice he could have stole a lot of money. He didn't do it. So that was a tekufa. We had more of that. Later on, a lot of these elites got corrupted by materialism, but not in the beginning. And Ben Gurion went to see him because they said, you know, you're the one who is the uh, the Gadol that all the from listen to all the Haredim, and I want tell me what your terms are for recognizing the state of Israel. It's like a funny story, but that's what it boiled down to. Because Ben Gurion said, "Listen, we're all Jewish. We live here. We got to get along. It'll be fatal for us all if we don't get along. So what do we do? Tell me what your terms are. What do we need to do to get you to recognize the state?" But, you know, in a way that I can set terms for you also. Let, let, no, let, let, let's negotiate. And the Chazanish basically said there's nothing to negotiate about. That's a famous line. We are the full ship, you're the empty ship. Right? So, um, what do you do when one guy says, I guess, we need soldiers to fight in Norman, the other one says, the only protection for Claudius Yisrael is the, is the Lima Torah. So how do you work out those two positions? Are you telling me it's impossible to work out the two positions? I, the, the answer is the Chazanish felt it is. I mean, as far as I know. It was just interesting. Because here we are, 70 years later, we solve these problems as we speak. The Haredi world, which of course is much larger now, and more powerful, is in my opinion is trying like a big giant to feel its way into some kind of new messias of, so to speak, recognizing the state without giving up anything, you know, in terms of the Yiddishkeit-wise, the Torah-wise, which is not easy to do. And, uh, but years ago, the Chazanich told Ben-Gurion, he says, you know, there, there is no basis for us to recognize you. I mean, we live here, we're not making a revolution, we're fighting, we're, we're, we're paying the taxes, we're paying the laws, but the state of Israel is not legitimate because it's not grounded in the Torah. Uh, the idea of a, of a secular Jewish state to the Chazanish is an oxymoron. And, you know, and I think Ben-Gurion knew this. I mean, what I mean to say is like this. He understood the Vart. He obviously didn't hold of it. And he wasn't going to become a Shomer Shabbos in order to, uh, you know, satisfy the Frum. And he left, you know, sort of disappointed and uh, he must have realized that, you know, like Madame Pompadour said, Aprimala Deluge, one day after I'm gone, there'll be trouble with this sort of thing. And we have trouble in the state of Israel today, in many areas. What do you do with the Arabs? What do you do with this? What do you do with that? And one of the questions is, what do we do to from and enough from? Like, how do we work it out? As I speak tonight, the war is still going on. And as I speak, there is, Baruch Hashem, a big octus, as we all know, and may I say that, you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole. The war itself has been a go-rain, not only for the Achtos in the sense that um, people want to come together and emphasize what, what we have in common rather than what separates us. Uh, and you see from Jews in, in their way trying to say we want to be part of the national effort. It's certainly to fight Hamas. And you have one video after another of going to the army base and trying to sing with the soldiers and that sort of thing. In addition to a few people actually signing up for the army, you know, there's job nicks and things of that nature. 
it's more it's it's a way of saying I identify with the claw. But uh Ruba the Ruba is not. Meaning this is uh you know I don't know how long this will last. But what's also happening is under the pressure of this terrible events and the drama of you know war which involves life and death, you see a lot of Israelis or doing mitzvos, uh, let, let me use that term. I don't say they're flipping and becoming Shomer Shabbos, all the rest of it, but they're picking up on their mitzvahs, aren't they? Whether it's with the tzitzes or the brachas or the yarmulkes or things like that. Uh, or at least you find these trade for restaurants are willing to kosher themselves in order to provide kosher food to soldiers. They're all part of the same, you know, shtick of trying to be work on a team and I'll be mavater on your behalf. You know, for your sake, which is a tremendous thing. Okay, if the Chazanish were alive today, I don't know how he would touch it up. Um, it's not a fair question because he grew up in his time and under his circumstances. The state of Israel, as far as I can see, did not at all turn out the way the Chazanish envisioned it. He's he was in the early years of the state, and he's reported to have said, "I saw it in Haggadah of the Chazanish once." He said, "If they let one Jew." Uh, keep Shabbos, it's a, that is always a nace. You understand? I don't see it that way. I mean, from the very beginning, they kind of realized from day one, May 14, 1948, they're not going to be able to stop a lot of Jews from keeping Shabbos. They messed over the Sephardim, and that was the last years of his life, when the Sephardim all came to Israel, and they tried to unfrum them all, and they did a big job unfrum them, and that was very outrageous, and, you know, the Yemenite children and all the rest of it. So this really informed a lot of his, uh, it just probably, could, what's the right word, confirmed a lot of his uh, hatred of what he saw in Zionism as like a big plot to unfroom everybody. But you and I know, 70 years later, that ain't the way the Rabbani Shalom worked things out. Israel's become the biggest Malcolm Torah in the world, and in quantity and quality, and the uh, the extremes of Frumkai, let me put it this way, uh, you know, Exists like no nowhere else, like they have in Eretz Yisrael, the freedom to be as super from as you want, and the political situation is so screwball that the Burnish Lomol figured out that all the Chilonim are paying for the yeshivas and the Beis Yaakovs, which drives them, which drives the Chilonim crazy, as we know. So Eretz Yisrael did not turn out the way you know Ben Gurion envisioned it, but it didn't turn out the way the Chazanisha envisioned it, as far as I'm concerned. Now, what's interesting to me in light of everything I just said, is the following. I'm old enough to remember, when I was young, the uh, Yom Kippur War. One of the things that happened after the Yom Kippur War was there was a big wave of depression. Everybody, you know, because they lost a couple thousand men. And uh, they'd been surprised and all the rest of it. Here, hold on for a second. Yeah, here it is. I remember that, um, so there was a big wave of depression in Israel. And a lot of people said they're going to leave the country. And in general, they gave up on Zionism and so forth and so on. And um, and the ones who stood out and started to be admired was the Kippah God guys. There's a famous uh, uh, article in the paper by Ephraim Kishon, who used to be the big uh, humorist. He was a very important person in Israeli uh, writing and literature at that time. And he said, I always used to make fun of these guys, but you know they're the ones who keep the state going, and they're the true believers in Eretz Yisrael, and, you know, thanks to them, 
the rest of us are able to hold out over here. And, uh, you know, those are the real victims. And he said, I, I can't make fun of them. And in other words, it was a moment in which somebody with an arch was trying to say, you know, there really is tremendous value in the religious tradition. I'm not saying I can keep it all, all the rest of it, but, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, treat it with contempt. I think something like that is happening in somewhat of a different way right now. Whereas the result of this shock, not the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago, but the Simchas Torah War of a few weeks ago, uh, there is uh, a feeling like that among any non from in Israel. Not the hard left and not Haaretz, I get it, you know, I mean, that's true, but among the middle. And um, we don't know what the result of this will be. I can tell you that um, after the Yom Kippur War, it was a big wave of Chuzir uh, of a lot of Balchubas in Israel. Then eventually it died out. I think you're going to see something like that now if we, the firm, don't mess it up by acting stupid, you understand? Uh, which we have a good habit of doing. Uh, you know, I always say, if the Shah's party didn't make itself look so corrupt, under the, n n this situation now, they probably have 30 seats. That's what I think. Uh, they'd probably be the biggest party, which is <laughs> funny. Uh, because you have tremendous number of people who want to be like Avadio says, there we go to Lahaxi Atarliosna. So, in that regard, the Hasidic position, you know, was was is is uh, representing what the world looked like seventy years ago. Uh, how it would go today? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's the same. Now, a lot of I think, in as, as far as I can tell, me myself and I, I think this is really being debated secretly among big gadolim and Eretz Yisrael now. You know which way to go. Uh, we don't have anybody like the Kazanish now. And there's no, as far as I can see, there's no dynamic figure, anything near that, in the Haredi world. And 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 the people that the newspapers say are dynamic figures, they'll be the first ones to tell you that we are nowhere near in the same universe as the Kazanish, or someone like that. Um, the lack of leadership is, is, is kind of really like a big mock of our times. And the Kazanish... You know, what he did possess was leadership. Knows he, not the typical way of follow me, but the way of influencing events and giving legitimacy to certain positions and declaring illegitimate other positions. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the the uh, remarkable, you know, uh, uh, aspect of someone like him. And I don't think he was replaced. After Chazanish passed away, there was nobody else that was like, even though we had big Gedolim back then, still in the 50s, and I'm not talking about someone's ability in, in Lumdus and learning, because that you had, but it's not the same thing as being just a charismatic Godel in and of itself. So it's someone who says, this is the way things should be, and people say, you know, he's right, and that's the way things should be. It's very famous, I'm sure many of you heard it, that the Panevich Rabbi said like this, when the Chavetz Chaim was around, I used to consult him and everything. And after Chavetz Chaim died, I go to Chazanish and everything. That idea of going to somebody and everything is, uh, you know, a marker of, uh, you know, of a true Godel. When they tell you, hey, you have to go to this guy to get legitimacy for your position, that's a different story. Then you're being pressured by social norms, you know, and they'll tell you, if you don't get this person to sign on or agree, then you can't make this in this change or whatever. 
that's the difference. As soon as somebody tells you you got to do it or you better do it or something like that, then it's phony. That's manufactured. And then you're in our current situation. You want to know who the God of the door is? Look on the next cover of a uh, you know, magazine. <laughs> you know, Mishpacha, Ami, this one, that one, the other, Yatad. They'll all tell you who, they'll tell you who the God is. You may or may not have heard about them, and, and they'll try to, you know, push it through. The Chazanish was not put out there by any magazine or any uh, any, any newspaper or journal. It, the charisma rose as it as it arose, and remember, he didn't even, he didn't even write Shalos and Shuvas in the classic sense, but nevertheless, his positions and opinions had tremendous weight, as, as we all know, particularly in Eretz Yisrael. So. He therefore left as a legacy, as far as I can see, this uh, very complex relationship question with the state of Israel. Um, there could be no legitimacy in the, in the, in the regular sense of lachatchila, and that this is okay, and to have a country which is, uh, in principle, uh, you know, not committed to God or the laws is really problematic. If you think about it, it should be like a scandal. And yet we know the 20th century and the 21st century worked out in funny ways. And even a lot of these people that are totally unfrom, you have a lot of Tinnish and Nishbaism. And you also have a situation, like I said before, where whatever these guys want, the from thing, the Haredi thing is, is, is increasing all the time because they have a lot of kids. And so you don't see from neighbors being taken over by non from, but the other way around. And that kind of speaks volumes. Now, nobody knows what the future is, but most people would agree that to the degree that the Haredim had built up through this, uh, you know, uh, consolidated isolationism within the context of a free society, it's because of the direction of the Chazanish. And the irony is that he and his successors were able, therefore, to create in, in Medina, Israel, in a Zionist state, something that never existed before, and particularly in Europe, in Belarus, and Lithuania, and all this business, which was a society without any goyim. Uh, not only without any goyim, without any non-from. But Abraham doesn't have any non-from. Yerushalayim, for the most part, you know what I mean, the from neighbors doesn't have anybody non-from. There's no such thing as mixed neighbors. You know, either it goes one way or the other way, or it's in transition, okay? But there's no mixed in Europe, it wasn't like that. Vilna, I hate to tell you, Vilna was mostly Goyim. You know, Minsk was mostly Goyim. <laughs> I'm reminded of a famous story. I don't know if I ever told you before. My father told me long ago that um, it's supposed to be a story in, in the 1800s. A Russian a, a, a peasant gets on the train, go to see a doctor in a big city, never was in a train before. He sits down next to another Russian or something like that. Where are you from? Where are you from? This guy says, I'm from, you know, a little town, Pipishik, Schnippishik, whatever. Where are you from? From Minsk. Oh, I'm going to Minsk. Never been on a train, never been in a city. The other guy says, that's so. Where are you from? Klippishik, whatever. He says, I never heard of it. You never heard of Klippishik? I want to tell you something. That's a city with 65 Jewish families. He's a guy. So the Russian says, so? 65 Jewish families. How many have in Minsk? I don't know. 10,000 families? 10,000 families? Oh my good Lord. 10,000 Jewish families? It's unbelievable. 
He says, how many Russians do you have in Klippershik? He says, well, 65 Jewish families, and there are six Russian families. Right? Yeah, and we do the Shabbos going and all that stuff. How many do you have in Minsk? About a million. A million going? What do you need somebody going for? <laughs> you know, that was the reality in Eastern Europe. In Israel, it's not the reality. You know, how many are living in uh, Kiryat Sefer, in Modin, in, uh, you know, all these other, you know, in, in uh, what do you call it, Shemesh? There aren't any. Uh, this is something, you know, Chazanish, I don't think, envisioned. I think he envisioned that you'd have a problem with people living next to Hillary and being influenced by them, the way the story had been back in Europe when he was growing up. But the new Messias in Eretz Yisrael, Medinat Yisrael, was very different. Now, it ain't exactly what Ben-Gurion wanted. That is true, no question about it. And that goes to show you immense tract and got locked. You know, he, events don't turn out the way you necessarily see, you know, see them heading, okay? But I think the Ghazanish kind of, you know, saw this things going in this direction already at the turn, in the middle of the century by 1950. Because it was clear, as far as I can tell, I think it was pretty clear then that um, the government, this is what they don't tell you in the history books, the government was not going after the Ashkenazim, they were going after the Spartan. If you were a European Jew and you wanted to be a Haredi or something like that, they didn't block you. You might have a little bit of trouble here and there in terms of your uh, employment, but I know plenty of people, older generation, they'll tell you themselves, their fathers, their grandfathers, they were from, in order to get a job in Ben-Gurion and Israel, you had to vote for the Mapai. So they joined the Mapai party and they got that little red uh, booklet, you know, but that did not prevent them from being a totally shamer to as long as you voted the right way. So the government didn't really go after the Ashkenazim, they went after the Sephardim, who they treated in a very racist kind of way, which they're paying the price for now. The Sephardim hate them. But uh, I think this was already clear, you know, in the very beginning of the state. Uh, it would be interesting, this is just like a what if, what if 20 or 30 years later you had another meeting between Ben-Gurion and the Chazadish, and, you know, Ben-Gurion's like, things ain't working out the way I exactly happened over here. Uh, do you recognize the state of Israel now? You know, what would the, the Chazanish have said? Um, I just share these thoughts because uh, the Chazanish is associated with a very specific kind of hashkafa. Um But it seems to me today that you need, you know, the grounding in in, in um, Das Torah. Uh, but times are very different now. And I think the situation in Israel is very different now. And I don't think the threat to the from is the same one. The threat to the from today is not from the from the society. The threat is from the internet and those sorts of things. But those penetrate no matter what. No, there's even in the firmest of neighborhoods. You got people with you know with the internet now. I'm told that the big game changer was Corona when a lot of from people you know were stuck at home and then they got internet over there. That's a different story. Uh, that's a, a a breaching of the cultural insularity. But other than that, I don't know. So, anyway, I just wanted to share, like I said before, some of those ideas. Uh, in my mind, Chazanich becomes a historical figure, particularly uh, influential, in, 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 whose memory is influential in the current crisis we have in Israel. I'm referring to the internal crisis as well as the external crisis. 
And uh, therefore, it's food for thought for those who want to study the career of the Chazanish. Uh, beyond the little stories here and there you get in the Parador, but in the larger picture, um, do, I would recommend that you do so uh, based on the uh, guidelines that I just uh, laid out for you. Anyway, that's my opinion. Uh, again, I want to thank the Kasalsis for uh, sponsoring it, and especially if he's related, if his uh, Rabbi Kasalsi's grandmother was, was a relative of the Chazanish, this would be a particular uh, interest. As you know, as I said before, the whole royal family turned out during the Chazanish and the Kanievsky and all the rest it turned out to be, you know, the elites now in B'nai Brock and places like that. Um, but how the current war is going to change the dynamic is really a very, very interesting question. Nobody knows the answer to that. It seems to me, unless it's wishful thinking, it seems to me that there is a desire, just nobody knows how to make it happen, to try to bring together, stop the period that was there before, which is going to be a challenge, because how can I not have a period if I believe and you don't believe? If I'm Shomer Shabbos and you're not Shomer Shabbos. If I have allegiance to this and this and you have allegiance to that and that. I mean, is it possible for us to to, uh, you know, find a common ground. That, I think, is the great challenge uh, of our times. Anyway, as I said before, I want to thank the Kosowskis and wish them luck out there in uh, Michigan. And with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com